Previously on Mafia. Stephanie St. Clair, a black Caribbean immigrant, had become one of the most successful policy bankers in 1920s New York City. She had made a fortune running a Harlem-based numbers racket, a form of illegal gambling, gaining notoriety along the way. Sinclair did not conceal her occupation, nor was she ashamed of her chosen line of work. Her neighbors knew who she was and how she earned a living. In fact, her larger-than-life personality and extravagant lifestyle made her actually difficult to miss in a Harlem celebrity. One former 409 Edgecombe resident recalled that Stephanie Sinclair was just as fascinating as the building's more respectable residents. She remembers, quote unquote, Stephanie Sinclair breezing through the lobby with her fur coat. She had a mysterious aura about her and she wore exotic dresses with a colorful turban wrapped around her head. Uh, a policy banker like Stephanie Sinclair was, was seen in, in very high regard in the community because this was a person who employed people, it was a person who gave you a chance to win money, and uh, they needed to have a good reputation. Using her power, wealth, and influence, Stephanie St. Clair built an empire. But change was creeping in from outside Harlem. Crime families from other neighborhoods caught wind of St. Clair's success, and they were looking to take over. This is Mafia. On December 5th, 1933, the 21st Amendment was passed, ending prohibition in the United States. While many celebrated this change, mafia groups around the country were realizing a key part of their business was about to run dry. Bootlegging was a major moneymaker for many of the big crime families in New York City. Without the need to smuggle alcohol, mafia groups were looking for new sources of income. One place in particular caught the attention of the Italian Mafia. Elwood Watson is a professor of history, African-American studies, and gender and sexuality studies at Tennessee State University. And Jeff Schumacher is the vice president of exhibits and programs for the Mob Museum in Las Vegas. Uh, they saw Harlem, they saw the Harlem numbers racket trade uh, as a possibility to, uh, you know, regain some of those losses. And that's what um, got them involved in coming up to Harlem. The mob had, had really controlled bootlegging and speakeasies in Harlem for years. I mean, this was their bread and butter. I mean, they actually had speakeasies or nightclubs in, in Harlem uh, that would have black entertainers, but black people couldn't go to the, go to the clubs. The only white people could go to the clubs. So they had controlled that part of the underworld uh, for years, but they had ignored the numbers racket uh, because they assumed it was a really small money business. The Harlem numbers racket had never garnered too much attention from surrounding mafia groups. Until now. Remember, people could pay as many, as little as a penny or a few pennies uh, to, to bet their number on a particular day. And so this seemed like small money to the, to the mob. Uh, but it was in fact a big business on a volume basis. I mean, so many people were playing that all those pennies really started to add up. And once the mob recognized this, it saw an opportunity. LaShawn Harris is an author and an associate professor of history at Michigan State University. They're attracted to the numbers racket 
um, as early as the 1920s. I mean, by the 1930s, we start to see kind of like the big fish, like a, a, like uh, a Charles Luciano and others being attracted more to Harlem's numbers racket. And this is mostly because of prohibition ending in the early 1930s, and also because the amount of money that African Americans and Caribbean Americans are making uh, as bankers is being published in local newspapers like the New York Times, as well as black newspapers like the New York Age and the New York Amsterdam News. So it's this idea that, you know, at one point these, you know, kind of Harlem pennies, right? You know, at one point people thought this was, this was just nothing. Now people are starting to see that they're making hundreds of thousands of dollars and decide that they should also have a piece of this, if not all of it. While other organized crime groups were floundering, the Harlem gambling scene was as strong as ever. With the end of the 1920s came the Great Depression. Illegal lotteries were becoming a last-ditch effort for many people to acquire some form of income. She was a very savvy businesswoman because people were desperate to um, make money because it was the Great Depression and any kind of money they could get, they, you know, they would do anything. Some people would do anything they could. To, uh, it was about survival. So it was you know, very, very successful, you know, raked you know, um, you know, a substantial amount of money and stuff as well. And um, she was able to invest wisely. Like I said, she had shrewd investments. She was a smart businesswoman. She certainly did not hesitate to take advantage of those opportunities. It was around this time that Stephanie St. Clair met a man by the name of Ellsworth Johnson, better known as Bumpy Johnson. Bumpy Johnson was born in South Carolina in 1905. Uh, he was a high school dropout who worked odd jobs and, you know, would gravitate toward, you know, illicit, un unsavory people and unsavory crowds. So some people are like that. They have a tendency to draw themselves toward, uh, you know, uh, seedier people. And he was one such person. And he engaged in various illicit, you know, activities. And they landed him in jail for at least a decade. And after he was released from jail, um, he met St. Clair, Stephanie St. Clair, who took him on her wing, so to speak. Like so much of Stephanie St. Clair's life and the details surrounding it, much of her relationship with Bumpy Johnson is shrouded in mystery. So we know that Stephanie St. Clair and Bumpy Johnson were probably friends. Some speculate that they were lovers. Uh, we know that she at one point had employed him as um, as her bodyguard, and they may have attended or he may have escorted her to different um, social events. But it's really ambiguous in terms of, you know, sources about what this relationship was, was really about. But we do know that there was some sort of business, uh, professional working relationship between them. And she could have, and, and if they did have a relationship, she could have been one of many women. Right. You know, this is the 1930s. Like, you know, they're in a in an enterprise where, you know, people, um, you know, they're lying and, and, and cheating. So, you know, she could have been one of, of several women. While it is impossible to say whether or not Stephanie Sinclair was romantically involved with Bumpy Johnson, their partnership was real. And he would soon become a key player in St. Clair's operation. Stephanie Sinclair was an older woman. She liked younger men. You know, Bumpy was, you know, uh, a nice looking, you know, nice looking man. She, he was really right up her alley. Like, you know, this is a, a nice little, 
you know, as we used to say, you know, like a tenderoni. So I'm going to put him on. He's going to be my bodyguard. And if I need to go to a play, if you've seen the movie Hoodlum, you see him act as the bodyguard, but also as this, you know, kind of not lover, but really an intellectual companion because Bumpy Johnson was known to be this real, this real intellect. And that's another thing that we don't really know about Stephanie Sinclair, unless you've done the research where she's from, is her education background. You know, what type of education did she have? He was a, quite an amazing gangster, uh, t- very tough and uh, ruthless, and yet very kind as well. He had a, he was sort of this two sides of the, same, of the coin, uh, much like Stephanie St. Clair would, was a philanthropist, you know, Bumpy Johnson uh, had that reputation as well and trained, if you will, many of the up-and-coming gangsters that uh, populated the streets of, of New York in the 50s and 60s and 70s. St. Clair would need all the strong allies she could get as the threat of outside mobs moving in was looming over her head. One mobster in particular, the infamous Dutch Schultz, would become her biggest rival. White gangster Arthur Flegenheimer, also known as Dutch Schultz, posed the greatest threat to Stephanie Sinclair. A Bronx native, Schultz was one of New York's and the nation's most ruthless bootleggers and criminals. In 1935, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover referred to Schultz as public enemy number one. Dutch Schultz had made a career in bootlegging and fear-mongering. He was known for his violent tendencies and seemingly found great joy in inflicting pain and torturing those he believed wronged him. When Schultz's bootlegging business became obsolete, he set his sights on new territory. Like many other powerful New York mobsters, he saw the success of Harlem's gambling scene as a new business venture. The Really the first gangster uh, to try to muscle in on Harlem's Uh, a numbers game was Dutch Schultz. This made sense geographically because Dutch Schultz's rackets were operating adjacent to Harlem in the Bronx and in Upper Manhattan. So when it comes to the numbers rackets, there are different ethnic groups who also run their own rackets. I think that when people hear about the Harlem numbers racket, they think that this is a totally black enterprise. And it's it's not at all. Uh, there is a numbers racket that's run by Jewish Americans as well as um, Italian Americans and other immigrant groups. So different criminal syndicates are running numbers, their own versions of a gambling racket. In addition to that, the numbers racket, particularly Harlem's numbers racket, becomes another business venture to get involved in. So if you will, criminal entrepreneurs are diversifying their, if you will, kind of portfolio. So they're not just involved in like sex work and drugs and alcohol, because this is also during the prohibition era between the 1910s and the the early 1930s. The numbers racket becomes another uh, enterprise to add to their portfolio. Dutch Schultz and his mob descended on Harlem with the intent of gaining control of the area. You know, Schultz was making some inroads and he would do that largely through threats and violence, which was a new thing, you know. The banking, uh, the uh, policy business or the numbers business, uh, there wasn't a lot of violence associated with it until Dutch Schultz came along and started muscling in 
uh, the whole thing. And in many cases, a lot of the black numbers runners pretty much decided to uh, not take them on, and um, Dutch Schultz himself was a gangster. If you did not pay for protection laws like that as well, he would he, he murdered people, uh, a lot of the black numbers runners up in Harlem who did not provide um, you know protection money and did not want to give over their, or at least part of their um, profits to him. However, there was one who refused to give in to Dutch Schultz. The Queen of Harlem would not give up her empire. Daphne St. Clair was somebody they could not intimidate. She certainly fought fire with fire. So he realized that she was somebody who was not going to necessarily surrender her properties and her, you know, part of her business to him. And she would also tip off the police, other police officers, about uh, Dutch Schultz's activities and things as well. Stephanie Sinclair courageously declared that she was not afraid of Dutch Schultz or any living man, and she actually said, he'll never touch me, I will kill him if he sets foot in Harlem. Dutch Schultz is a rat. The numbers game is mine. He took it away from me and is swindling the colored people um, from their money, and I'm the only one after him. Stephanie Sinclair effectively entered into a war with Dutch Schultz. Schultz is trying to move in. St. Clair is fighting him. She's fighting him on the streets, and she's also fighting him in the press with these full-page ads. And it's written in her, in her name with uh, her byline and her picture. St. Clair also targeted the businesses Schultz was associated with. So she was able to fight fire with fire, so to speak, in between that and, you know, attacking his businesses and stuff, you know, uh, shooting up his storefronts and the like. Showing her enemies that she was really fearless, Sinclair staged several strategies of opposition against uh, white racketeers like Schultz. Stephanie Sinclair employed violence to make a statement about white numbers racketeers' presence in Harlem. She confronted legitimate white store owners whose establishment served as numbers drops for Schultz and other white racketeers. She entered their stores one after the other and smashed glass cases. She snatched and destroyed number slips and ordered the quote-unquote small timers to get out of Harlem. And St. Clair encouraged black numbers players to only conduct business with black numbers bankers and laborers. In her estimation, white infiltration of Harlem's numbers racket was an extension of Jim Crow segregation and the continuation of white domination over black life. Both St. Clair and Schultz sent members of their respective organizations to unnerve the opposing side. Once he sent one of his bodyguards to her uh, directly, and, you know, I guess he felt that would intimidate her, so to speak. So what she did was, you know, she said, I'll be right back. So she went and got baby Bumpy Johnson, some of her own bodyguards, and told, her, told them to take him into a closet where they would, quote unquote, take care of him. So that was a message to Dutch Schultz that she was not about to be a uh, coward, so to speak. Stephanie St. Clair even went as far as to leak information to law enforcement in an attempt to get Schultz and his gang out of the picture. She also provided information to the police about Schultz's operations, which led to big busts and losses for him. Um, and she did not do this secretly. She openly boasted about it. She would just, you know, just <laughs> very brazenly say, this is a bad guy, here's what he's doing, and here's, here's how, why you should shut him down. One such raid allegedly cost Schultz upwards of $12 million in losses. 
St. Clair celebrated by bragging about it in the newspapers. This infuriated Schultz beyond everything else, and he retaliated in a way that sent Sinclair running. So for interfering with his business, Schultz, perhaps viewing the outspoken black female immigrant as someone that ruptured um, normative expectations of women and challenged white, uh, white men, placed a contract on Stephanie Sinclair's life and forced her to go into hiding for a short time in 1935. According to Sinclair, she was quote unquote running for her life and she even had to hide in a cellar while a super, a friend of mine, covered me with coals, end quote. Despite all the fighting and violence, Sinclair never truly backed down and never gave in to paying Schultz for protection. Uh, ultimately, Sinclair was the only uh, numbers banker in Harlem who refused to work with Dutch Schultz. In a page one story in the Amsterdam News, she declared famously, quote, I'm not afraid of Dutch Schultz or of any other man living. He'll never touch me. And he, he, and he never did. Uh, but he thought about it. You know, Dutch Schultz tried intimidation and violence, but St. Clair's bodyguards kept her safe. She, she was defiant and, and got away with it, which is a little bit surprising, really, because Dutch Schultz was such a brutal mobster. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, she, she was tough. By 1935, Stephanie St. Clair seemingly decided it was time for her to move on from her empire. She distanced herself from her numbers racket and left Bumpy Johnson in charge of the operation. So not long after the conflict with, with Dutch Schultz, uh, St. Clair turned over the reins of her numbers operation to Bumpy Johnson. She realized she had to go legitimate. You know, it was her, she knew it was her best interest to, you know, not to continue in the illicit activities. Although she did go to, you know, halfway houses in prison here from time to time, she uh, knew in order for her to, you know, for any kind of long-term success and to stay out of trouble, uh, severe, severe trouble, she had to go legitimate. So Bumpy Johnson did uh, take over the numbers racket that Stephanie St. Clair had started. And then, you know, ultimately he had to submit to paying protection money to the mafia. But he continued to run the numbers operation in Harlem for, for many years. Eventually, Dutch Schultz proved too big a threat, and he finally received the payoffs from St. Clair's racket. But Stephanie St. Clair would have the final word in her feud with Dutch Schultz. St. Clair and her gang were not the only ones who had issues with Schultz, and he paid the ultimate price for it. On October 23, 1935, St. Clair's public battle with Schultz ended when he was shot at the Palace Chop House in Newark, New Jersey. And the lore goes, as Schultz lied dying in the New Jersey hospital, he received a telegram from the quote-unquote Queen of Numbers, which read, As ye sow, so shall you reap. Dutch Schultz died three days later on October 26, 1935. As she moved on from the Harlem Numbers racket, Stephanie St. Clair began to focus on new ventures. She really turned her attention to other things, including her what became her second husband, and the political reform efforts that he and others were involved in. St. Clair entered into a relationship with a prominent Harlem man named Sufi Abdul Hamid, 
He was really an imposing figure who stood about six feet tall and weighed about 225 pounds. The colorful political reformer was routinely seen in Harlem wearing like a turban around his head, a black and crimson lined coat, a green velvet silk blouse, and black riding boots. In 1936, the two entered into a contractual marriage. This phrase contractual marriage is not entirely clear. It's not a, very much of an American custom. Apparently it's more common elsewhere. Uh, but they were not married with a license or a traditional ceremony. One reason for this may have been that St. Clair as you, uh, was not legally divorced uh, from George, her first husband. Uh, and Hamid may have been married as well. So this was sort of a marriage of, uh, 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 more of a business arrangement than a marriage. However, their relationship did not last long. St. Clair discovered Hamid was having an affair with a woman named Dorothy Matthews. Matthews was better known as a fortune teller named Madame Fou Fatam. And, and this enraged St. Clair. Uh, so in 1938, so, you know, really about a year and a half after they had this contractual marriage, uh, St. Clair confronted Hamid and fired three shots at him. The, the details of this depend on who you believe. Do you believe him? Do you believe her? There was another witness who had a third story. Uh, but nonetheless, she was arrested and she was charged with first degree assault and also possession of an illegal firearm, unlicensed firearm. She informed police and reporters that she went to confront Hamid because, quote unquote, he had been treating her cruelly and because of his alleged affair with Matthews. In several newspaper interviews, Hamid admitted that he was not surprised by Sinclair's actions. According to Hamid, several weeks prior to the shooting, Sinclair had threatened his life after he informed her that he didn't want anything to do with her. She told reporters that she was brokenhearted, that he had had these affairs, and, and that, he, uh, that she loved him and he did not love her. And so she was very bitter about this. But she said she never intended to kill him, that uh, she, you know, the quote to the reporters was, I didn't want to kill him, I only wanted to scare him. If I had killed him, I would have died. In other words, it was a, she loved him so much, she couldn't imagine him dead. St. Clair faced trial for the incident and was sentenced to two to 10 years. She served three before being released. After being released from prison, Stephanie St. Clair faded into the background. Little is known about how she spent the final years of her life. She pretty much lived quietly. Uh, she did uh, give interviews from time to time, but she lived a pretty much relative, not too much is known, she lived a relatively quiet life for the last um, quarter of her life. It's just really unclear what happens to her. And ironically, if you think about her life, throughout the early 20th century, all of these newspapers are reporting about her. The Chicago Defender, the New York Age, the New York Amsterdam News, all of them are talking about Stephanie Sinclair. But towards the end of her life, in the 60s, nobody's really talking about her. And that may be because of the coming of the Civil Rights Movement, and that may be because of the coming of the Black Power Movement, and also because lottery becomes legal in New York City. And she's not visible. She's just not visible. And she may, um, this may have been purpose, you know, purposeful. She may, she may want to just be, you know, kind of settle and just be out of visibility too. So we don't, we don't know. She told uh, uh, a government agency at one point that she was a dressmaker, 
but it's likely that she she sort of remained in the in the background of the numbers racket uh, for many years under the protection of Bumpy Johnson, and 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 really just had lived a very quiet life for for many years. It's astonishing how little we know about what she was doing from like, you know, like 1940 uh, to 1970. It's there's, there's some just a real gap in the story that would be so great to. Uh, for somebody to uncover a little bit more about that period of her life, but it's, it appears that, you know, she sort of retired from uh, from the underworld at least, and uh, and moved on uh, and didn't make news anymore for, for the rest of her life. Then, in 1969, Stephanie St. Clair died at the age of 72. Despite all the mystery and lore surrounding her life. The queen of the policy rackets left a lasting legacy. The thing about Stephanie St. Clair's story is that although she was engaged in illegal activities, I mean, she can be seen in a positive light uh, as a black woman who was an entrepreneur and a community activist at a time when most, when many, many black women were employed at best as domestic servants or were just trying to get along in life. And, and she was an entrepreneur from a very young age, very successful, uh, you know, didn't take any guff from anybody, and also was involved in her community in a really important way, you know, helping to build Harlem, uh, you know, into a really what was regarded for many decades as the premier place, you know, for African-American life in America. So, you know, I think she can see, be seen in a positive light, uh, especially when you consider that uh, you know, this numbers racket that she was involved in became the lottery that we have in, what, 40-some you know, states now have legal lotteries. <laughs> so it's not like the, the vice that she was engaged in was something that, you know, that we condemn today because we, we support it. With the incredible fortune she earned, it's likely she helped provide for her community. And the Harlem numbers racket provided jobs to those living in the neighborhood. She definitely um, had various philanthropic efforts, you know, from donating money to schools, certainly, you know, employing and um, giving money to the NACP and other, you know, um, organizations, you know, uh, black organizations of the, of the era. And the NACP is with us today, obviously. But um, so she would definitely, you know, uh, try to, uh, you know, assist the black community in various ways, whether it was, you know, through the judicial aspects, educational aspects, you know, um, uh, economic aspects as well. One thing is certain. Stephanie St. Clair was a powerful woman, deserving the respect and legacy she left behind. I mean, you got to look at a woman in the early 20th century who was very um, bold, you know, combative, and, you know, took on mobsters and took on, you know, very, very powerful people and did not back down from them in the 1930s. And I think a lot of that had to do with that Caribbean mindset, you know, I mean, that psych psychology, you know, she felt she was just as good as anybody else. Whereas I think a lot of the um, uh, black Americans, African-Americans were probably psychologically con to conditioned to, you don't take on law enforcement, you certainly don't take on white law enforcement because you're going to lose. She didn't see it that way. You know, she basically um, would certainly not hesitate to take on anybody who she felt was getting in her way. You know, she had a fierce temper. She was not, she would use, you know, profanity and, you know, she was quick to fight and she was just that kind of very, very, you know, brash and uh, in your face type of individual who really um, didn't take any, um, what she felt, disrespect from anybody, you know, and she was quick to come back at you. Stephanie Sinclair was a pivotal 
figure within Harlem's numbers racket and in the overall broader African-American freedom struggle. She used her wealth to employ black New Yorkers. She directly challenged prevailing perceptions of female entrepreneurship and race politics. And she boldly exposed the hypocrisy of New York City officials. Although Sinclair did not fit the typical image of an early 20th century race advocate, she supported race and gender equality and economic independence for blacks, advocated black institution building, and viewed Harlem as an enclave of both possibility and limitations for black New Yorkers. Her life symbolizes the often untold narratives and experiences of black women who use urban informal economies as a way to creatively secure economic stability, wealth, and respectability. Next week on Mafia. In the mid-90s, notorious Massachusetts crime boss James Whitey Bulger Jr. had just gone into hiding. He had received a tip-off from an ally within the FBI that the federal government was about to indict him. His crimes included racketeering, money laundering, extortion, and complicity in 19 murders. And his FBI handler was John Connolly. He is actually still in jail. He was a corrupt handler. And he was the one that notified Kevin, who notified Jimmy, and Jimmy went on the run. He would stay on the run for 16 years earning himself a spot on the FBI's 10 Most Wanted Fugitive List. This has been Mafia, an Audioboom Originals series, hosted by me, Fleet Cooper. This show is produced by Audioboom's Lauren Vogel, Blair Payton, Pam Burrows, Karen Bevan, and Rachel Jacobs. Executive producers for Audioboom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. Special thanks to LaShawn Harris, Jeff Schumacher, and Elwood Watson for providing expert insight for this episode. Follow Mafia on Spotify, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. <laughs>